Let's turn together if we can. We're going to look at God's Word a little bit. What I want to do is, I'm going to lay this passage out for you. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 2. We're in a series called The Gospel According to Ezra and Nehemiah, but we are in Nehemiah uh, today, chapter 2. And I want to bring some clarity, I want to bring some direction, I want to bring some outlining to this passage. We're going to hit it rather quickly for the two of you that do take notes. You will notice there's only two points, so you're like, yes, his preparation, his executions, unfortunately, there are nine sub-points, but we're going to hit them quick. Um... <laughs> uh, so that's where we're at. So those are the two subpoints. We'll follow along. We're going to go quickly. You're in community group. Hopefully you are. If you're not, you need to be. Uh, we'll flush some of this stuff out in community group as we study together uh, throughout the week in Nehemiah chapter 2. So I'm just going to pray one more time as we open your word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the leaders you have brought here. You have been so faithful to us. You have been so good to us. You have brought many men and women uh, to, to lead and to, to serve you in many different capacities, Lord. So, Father, we are so thankful. We just want to give you praise and glory for your provision for us. And as we look to Nehemiah, we see a leader. We see someone that you have provided and raised up to bring uh, some, some revitalization to your people. Again, we thank you for Scott and bringing him to us in your good providence to this church. And Father, we pray that whatever role we play, whatever place we are, Lord, that we would do it well. And we would do it well so that you would be seen as the one true living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the the one who is sovereign and loving and caring and providing mercy and grace. Lord, we love you. We look forward to what you're going to say to us in these moments. In Jesus' good name, amen. So we're in Ezra Nehemiah, we're in chapter 2. What we're going to do is we're going to continue in this series in Nehemiah through um, after Easter into spring, and then this, this summer we're going to be launching into a series through the book of Proverbs. That's where we'll be in this summer. That's ice. Yeah. That's where we'll be in this summer. So um, that's coming up. The Gospel According to John comes September, probably a year, a year and a half in that. But today, we're in the year 445 B.C. That's where we are. I know some of you might feel old, but 445 B.C. And it's been 140 years since God sent two southern tribes into captivity, Benjamin and, and Judah, into exile in Babylon. It's been over 90 years where the first group of exiles were allowed to return to Jerusalem from being in exile through King Cyrus, who put a decree and allowed the Jews to return to the second exodus, going back to Jerusalem. It has been, let's see, almost 60 years since Ezra led a contingency of people to Jerusalem from Babylon to bring about religious reform and dedication and and consecration. To God through his word. All that has taken place. We've gone through that before. Now it's 445 BC. God raises up a man named Nehemiah. It's 13 years later since Ezra first showed up on the scene at 458 BC. It is 13 years later. And God now has raised up a man named Nehemiah. He's going back to Jerusalem. 
He's going to bring another contingency with him. And he is all about restoring the walls and revitalizing the people of God. Chapters 1 through 7 is about restoration of the walls. Chapters 8 through 13 is about revitalizing the people. Last week in chapter 1, the narrative opens up with Nehemiah. He's in Susa. He's in the winter capital, the winter center, or the winter home residence of King Artaxerxes. It's December. It's cold. He went south, like so many people. He gets a word from Hanani, one of his brothers, in chapter 1, verse 3. And while he's serving as a cupbearer to the king, his brother comes back and he says to him, the remnant there in the providence of Jerusalem, he's in Babylon, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Last week we saw the concern about the walls being broken down wasn't really about the cosmetic look of the walls. It was about safety and security of Jerusalem. It was also about the glory of God, which I think is even more important, that while the city lay in ruins and the wall were in rubble, the name and fame of the God of Israel was in reproach. Verse 3, chapter 1, says they were in trouble. There was a possibility of enemy attack, but there was also shame. The Israelites knew that their destruction, that the burning down of Jerusalem, the tearing down of the walls, the, 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 the temple that was destroyed had to do with their rebellion, had to do with their sin, had to do with their turning back on their God. But because Nehemiah loves his God and because Nehemiah loves his people, God's people, when he heard the news from his brother, it broke his heart. And it says in chapter 1 that he sat down and he wept and he mourned. He prayed and he fasted. His prayer began with conviction that God is sovereign. And that God's has said, which means his loving kindness, his, his loyal love, was something that he would not turn his back on. Then he confessed his sins, if you remember. We would do well to remember to confess our sins, to repent of our sins, but not to stay there because he confessed and he moved to the confidence that God is faithful. So yes, we should confess, we should repent, but always end with the gospel. We don't stay confessing, we don't stay repenting. We celebrate the cross, the work of Jesus who forgives us of all our sins. And then last week, Nehemiah ends with 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 this prayer of chapter 1 and he's asking God, he's telling Lord, please, Lord, give, give your ear attentive to me and, and, and hear my prayer and, and would you give me success for the work you have called me to do, to go back to Jerusalem to build the, uh, excuse me, the walls of Jerusalem. And now in chapter 2, we see his plan, we see this vision that Nehemiah has, this, this idea of what could be Start to unfold. He's a true leader. He was a man with a vision. He was a man who was a man of prayer, but he was also a man of calculated action. Calculated action. You know what our vision here at King Chapel is? You know what vision we have as pastor elders, as deacons and deaconesses, as members of this church? You just look at our mission statement. We exist to glorify God. It's make his name great. Declare his salvation. Declare his worth. By living on mission, demonstrating, declaring the gospel, and making disciples through gospel-centered worship, transformation, and community, 
And many of you have heard that before and you're like, yes. That's what, our, that's what it says on the wall when you walk in. We got it, Pastor. Here's the problem. Some of you think it's my vision. Some of you think it's the leadership's of the church's vision. It's not. It's our vision. It's our mission. It's what we plan to do as a community, as a church. We need to take ownership of it if you're a member of King's Chapel. If you're a leader, you're a covenant member, or you call this your home. I hope we see in this book, as we continue to walk through this book, that's why we're going to take a little bit slower, and we see this work of God. We see how it begins with Nehemiah, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't rest simply with this one man. It is for all of us to do. That's what chapter 2 is all about. Chapter 2 is all about Nehemiah preparation, preparing for what lies ahead to gather the people of God to do the work of God. Preparation is important, amen? I love to cook. Some of you hopefully enjoyed it. One thing I've learned when I cook a large meal for a lot of people, 15, 20 people, Max is here from the mission, he'll tell you, is preparation is so important. Many of you go down to the rescue mission, spend days before Thanksgiving to prepare for that meal. It's very, very important that we have preparation. It's very, very important that we prepare for projects that are ahead of us. Reminds me of, of, of two guys, two rednecks in a red truck. You know where this is going. Goes to a lumber yard. And it goes to the lumber yard and they tell the guy behind the counter, listen, we need four by twos. And the guy's like, what? We're doing a project, we need four by twos. The guy's like, I think you mean two by fours. He's like, I don't know. Let me go back. And he runs out to his friend in the red truck. He comes back in and he goes, you know, you were right. We don't, need, we don't need four by twos. We need two by fours and we need to eat ten of them. And the guy says, well, how long do you need them? He said, I don't know. And he runs back out and he comes back in and he goes, listen, we need them for a long time because we're building a house. So, like, getting preparation piece down is really important. Like, knowing what you're doing is really important. Chapter 1 is broken down, chapters uh, 1, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. We'll see five preparations, we're going to hit them quick, that he made as he's making his appeal to the king. He's preparing to move forward to the work that God has for him. And then verses 10 through 20 is preliminary, but execution, things that he does, tasks that Nehemiah took on as he begins the rebuilding of the wall. So let's look at that together. Number one, the first thing that he does may be a surprise to you, and it may be the hardest thing for you to do, and that's waiting, right? In the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes. Now that's important, don't skip right over that, because we said in chapter 1, when he heard the news, it was the, the month of Chislev, which is December. Now it's Nissan, which is not a car, was April. So four months, four months, Nehemiah is praying, praying, and waiting, and waiting on God. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Nehemiah prayed, give me success today. Oh, Lord, four months. Sound familiar? Praying, waiting, waiting, praying. Lord, my time frame, come on, what are we doing? It's not, no, it's not your time frame, it's my time frame. And what does Nehemiah do? He hasn't heard from the Lord, not to move yet, so he just keeps praying, and he just keeps waiting on the Lord. Are you waiting? Are you praying? Are you waiting for your child? 
to come back to Jesus? Are, are you praying and waiting for the conversion of your spouse? Are you, you praying and waiting to see the door that God will open for the college in which you will go to, for the new job, for the resumes you've put out there? Are you waiting and, and waiting for the doctor to call with the results of your testing? Waiting is so hard sometimes, is it not? It doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It doesn't mean that God doesn't hear your prayers. Sometimes unanswered prayers are an excuse to give up, to, to be passive, to, be, to have apathy. Why bother? But let me tell you something. Waiting on God is not passive. It's not doing nothing. Waiting on God is not a waste of time. You hear me? Waiting on God is not a waste of time. Waiting on God is expectation. Passivity is procrastination. Waiting on God is purposeful. Passivity is, is purposeless. Waiting on God is attentive. Passivity is apathetic. Waiting on God is hopeful. Passivity, apathy is hopelessness. Waiting on God is faithful. Passivity is faithlessness. And waiting on God is strength. Passivity is sinful. See, Nehemiah knew what God wanted. He just had to wait. He had to wait to move when God said move. And sometimes God delays our prayers. Now, I am not the sharpest pencil in the bunch, but even I can come out with reasons why God would want to, me to wait, right? I mean, you know, even in my, in, my, in my pea brain, there are reasons that God says wait, wait. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he's unwilling. Scripture teaches us over and over that we are to persevere in prayer. But I'll tell you what. I think it's entirely fair to say this according to the text, that the time Nehemiah spent waiting, praying and waiting, provided him with the necessary insight to what was before him, particularly the right timing, the right timing on when he should approach the king. Look at verse 1b. When wine was before the king, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been said in his presence. Now is time to approach the king. Waiting was over. We don't know when he knew or how he knew, but he knew. He knew it was time to go because he went in without his poker face. He, he showed his continence. And for the first time, probably in a long time, maybe years for working for the king, he went with this long, sad face. And that's dangerous in those days. You come in with a, Lord, a long, sad face to the king, he may cut your head off. There was no, like, we don't, we don't want unhappy people around the king. And when you can do that, when, when you have no one accountable except God Almighty for the moment, he didn't want unhappy people around him. Another possibility, if you think about it, Nehemiah went in without a sad face for a long time until it was ready because if you're a cupbearer and you drink the wine and eat the food before the king because everybody's trying to kill him and you look sad or something wrong, you'd be like... Dude, you feeling all right? <laughs> How's your stomach feel? Is your throat starting to close? Are you getting dizzy? Like, you know, you just had some wine. Like, I, you know, don't be sad in front of me because, you know, you may drop dead. So I, we really don't know, but we know that the, the king assesses the situation, and he said to Nehemiah, why is your face so sad? doesn't look like you're sick. Ah, there's nothing but sadness of your heart. Then Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Literally, a terrible fear came over me. Now, think about that. That's encouragement to me. 
Nehemiah, you're praying, you're fasting. God says, go, you go. And when you go and you're right before to do what God wants you to do, you're scared. Count me in. Count me in. Count me in. God's timing was perfect, yet Nehemiah was human. He sensed the fear that we face. Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever known in the deepest part of your life and your soul, this is exactly what God wants me to do, and I am really nervous about it. I'm really afraid. Some of you may be afraid of the past. You say, you know, I know Jesus forgives me of all my sins, but I'm afraid something I've done is going to come back and haunt me. me. Maybe afraid of the present. And you're thinking, yes, I know I'm a new creature in Christ, but there's, there's this fear that I have that people will see me for who I am and not like me. Maybe you're afraid of the future and, you, and you're fearful of, about death, but you know I trust that Jesus rose and I too shall rise, but you're still afraid. Your fear can be so, so paralyzing. But fortunately for Nehemiah, his faith was greater than his fear. He had been praying, he had been soaking in the gospel, the loyal faithfulness of God's love. First John tells us there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fears. We need to let that soak in, the gospel truth. And it says, look at the narrative. I was very much afraid, but, I love that, but I said to the king. So instead of paralyzing fear, I'm afraid I'm not moving, there is, there's a sense of fear, but it propels him to do and to respond in a way that God wanted him to respond. Months of fasting and praying and mourning prepared him, I believe, for that crucial moment. What did he do? He trusted God. Very much prayed. I said to the king, live forever. That's a good way to start with your boss. Long live you, boss. I hope you're here forever in the company. You're doing such a great job. I, I really don't think it was so much buttering up than showing him respect. We would learn well by showing people in authority respect. That's what he's doing. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the, fa- the place of my father's grave lies in ruins and his gates have been destroyed by fire? <laughs> he just let it all out. Let, let me just let the cat out of the bag. And he's like, I'm re- I am really sad. Now remember, the king could have his head cut off at any moment. He could kill, he could torture him and give accountability to no one. Right? He wasn't accountable to anyone. And also remember, I want you to, I want you to remember this. It's important. Ezra chapter 4, we know that this same king had set a decree and said, stop the building of the walls, stop the building of the walls. In fact, they were stopped by force. Now he's asking the king to reverse, to to change his mind about that decree in Ezra chapter 4 and to change his mind and to allow them to rebuild. But Nehemiah's perfect timing was due because he trusted. He rested in the sufficiency and the sovereignty of his God. He was trusting, he spoke to the king, but he was trusting God to change the heart of the king from an adversarial position, stop the building, to, yes, Nehemiah, you may go and continue the work. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs, he bends, he inclines it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. You're waiting. His timing, look what he says, verse four, he's praying. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So before I talk to the king of Persia, I'm talking to the king of kings. I'm talking to the king of kings. Short prayer, moment prayer, eye messaging prayer, right? But before he gives an answer, so it was quick. It was, what do you want to do? Pray, answer. Like an eye message. Send off right away. 
But don't miss this. Let me tell you, the reason that Nehemiah was in tune with, with praying in that, in that millisecond is because Nehemiah had spent four months in prayer. Four months of prayer bathed in four months of prayer brings forth momentary prayer. If you're not in prayer regularly, you won't have that millisecond prayer when things go bad. When the plane drops like 400 feet and you're like 16,000 feet. You don't have time for the Lord's Prayer. Oh, Lord. You know, you're like, oh, my word. Lord, save me, right? I mean, that's all you're thinking right now. You're just getting it out there. It's a quick prayer. It reminds me of two boys with young boys visiting their grandparents around Christmas. And the two boys kneel before their bed and they want to pray. And the youngest one out loud, very loud, at the top of his lungs, says a really short prayer. Lord, I want a bike. And the brother's like, why are you yelling? God is not deaf. He said, I know, but grandma is, so we'll just. (laughs) That short prayer is birthed out of spending time in the throne room of God. Nehemiah was a man of prayer, and it was time when his life was in the balance of, 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 you know, his life was in the balance of, of death and life, but depending on what the king's response was, he is praying. There's no hesitation. You don't want to hesitate in front of the king. Right? In that millisecond, he answers the prayer. He, 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 he prays to God. He prays to God. Right? And that's, that's what we see. And, I, and, I, and, and it's good to have short prayer. It is good to pray through the day. But we want both. We want to spend time with Jesus. We want to spend time in prayer. And we want to have that life of prayer that's breathing in and breathing out. It's almost as if it came so naturally to Nehemiah. You know, it just was almost like he's breathing in and breathing out so naturally. I prayed to God, I answered the king. Beautiful, beautiful picture of that. Do we do that? Are are we at a place where we are constant and practicing, as Brother Lawrence says, the presence of God and the prayer of God before we pick up the phone, before we go to work, before we answer our spouse, before we discipline our children, before we talk to our husband, before we discuss finances, before we, we, do we stop, do we pray? Even if it's for a moment, do we pray? So he is waiting, it's his timing, it's praying, it's, 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 it's last, or well not last, but second last, organizing. We're going to go through this quick. He says to the king, if it please the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's grave, that I may rebuild it. So Nehemiah lifts his heart to God, and now it's time to open his mouth, and he has been confident in prayer, and now he's deliberately organizing. And that's the balance. Nehemiah was a man who waited, and Nehemiah was a man of action. Nehemiah was a man of prayer, and Nehemiah was a man who organized the project. Some of you would just rather pray. I'm good. Leave me over here. I'm just praying. Some of us want to organize. Give me the pencil. Give me the pad. I'll figure things out. We need both. That's why God gifts the church with different gifts. We need both, and that's a a wonderful balance. And look what he does. In this organizing, in this planning, in this uh, provision, he receives a couple of things. Number one, look at verse six with me. And the king said to me, the queen beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. The first thing Nehemiah receives is permission to go. He received permission to go. Now, this is his right-hand man. This is, this is, his, this is the cupbearer to the king. This is the guy that goes wherever the king goes, tastes the food and, and drinks the wine and keeps watch with the king. It's a very confidant 
position he holds. And he is ready to, to let him go. He's willing to say, you may go, even though he was a trusted member of that, I believe, of the, kingdom, of the king's court. But he wants to know how long you're going to be. I had to ask myself this question. If you went into your boss and you said, listen, I've got to go for a little while. I'm going to be gone for a week. Would he be go, great, go. Don't worry about when you come back. Just leave. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, maybe. Or would he say, look, I need you, man. How long are you going to be? Are, are, you that, are you that trusted? Are you that, is, he, is he that confident in you? Are you doing that kind of a job? Or you'll be going like, good, at least we can get something done now. You know, I'll let you, I'll let you rest on that. We'll let the Holy Spirit convict you. Okay, so permission, look for protection. Verse 7, if it please the king, give me letters so I can take it to the governors of the providence beyond the river and that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Verse 9, jump down to verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the providence beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So this is not something Nehemiah thought on a, on a pinch. He's been strategizing. He's been organizing for months until the opportunity arose. And he's like, give me letters. Give me on your, your letterhead so that when I go to that place and they got the barricade there and they're like, you're not passing. You're like, yes, I am. Here you go. King Artaxerxes said I can go. Oh, okay, you can go through. I need some timber. You're not getting anything. Oh, yes, I am. Here's King Artaxerxes said I am. Oh, yeah, get whatever you want. And it says that he not only got permission but he got protection can you imagine nehemiah he's got an entourage man you know what i mean he's got like you know 35 limo hummers and 60 armed guards fighter jets overhead like yo this somebody's coming i don't know who that is yeah that's right you know i not only got permission but i got some protection i'm getting where i'm going look what else he gets he gets permission he gets protection look at provision he gives him a letter to asap verse 8 keeper of the forest get any timber you want look what it says though that he may, verse 8, that he may give me timber and to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city. And, since we're talking about this king, I need a house too. For the house that I shall occupy. So I need enough of the wall, enough for everybody, but you know what? I need a place to live too. All right, we'll, we'll get you a house too. It's not a gift certificate to Home Depot. This is like, this is the real stuff. Right? He's like, you, whatever you need, you got. Notice we, did it, we noticed this in Ezra. God's providing everything needed for the temple and some. And now God's providing everything they need for the walls. God's work, God's work will be done by God's provision. God's work will be done by God's provision. And notice something else. He asked the, he asked the kings, like, listen, um, I, I want you to fund the whole thing. I, I got this all figured out. But the last thing I want to make sure I do is I want to witness to the glory of God. For the good hand of my God was upon me. God is the ultimate. The reason I included this in preparation, because I think if, if, if Nehemiah is anything like me or anything like you, it is good to be reminded in preparation for the work that is before us that your strength comes from God. That he has given you the ability to accomplish his task. That you need and I need to walk in humility and dependency upon God. All this is because the good hand of God was upon me. Let me give testimony to the goodness of God in answering my prayer, in guiding me on my way, in directing my speech, and meeting all my needs. That's a good place to be. Only God could have brought about the change 
in the king's heart, not Nehemiah. Only God could have done that. This had everything to do with God arranging in his good providence, not human engineering. He was meticulous in his organizing and his planning. But he trusted in his God. Psalm 16.9 In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Here at King Chapel, we're participating in the work of God. He's expanding his kingdom. He is building his church. And in order to be confident, I believe, in order to say with Nehemiah that the good hand of the Lord is upon us, we must prepare by, by waiting on the Lord, seeking the Lord in prayer, going to God, finding what he wants, praying to him, and waiting for him to say go. We need to pray long prayers, short prayers. We need to organize well, seek his wisdom. Witness to the glory of God. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Amen? So we are here living on mission with him. His waiting, his timing, his praying, his organizing, and finally he gets to the place of let God get glory. Okay? Next. Execution. Verse 10, we read about the, we'll get back to that, Sanbanat, the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite. They're, they're the enemies. You hear the jaw, da 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 We'll get back to them for a minute. Let me give you a couple of things that he does. And we'll, then we'll end. First one, again, may surprise you. First thing that Nehemiah does, excuse me, when he gets there, is he sleeps in. He gets to Jerusalem. He's got four months. He's been praying and fasting and waiting for four months. He speaks to the king. The king releases him. He takes a four-month journey, which probably lasted longer. He's getting timber along the way. And the first thing he does is rest. You know, it might have been a great reunion. He's never been there, but a lot of people had gone there from Babylon to Jerusalem. It might have been a great reunion. The first thing he does is like, you know what? I'll wait three days. Probably Sabbath was in there as well. But I'm just going to rest. I'm just going to rest for my journey. I'm going to rest and prepare myself and get ready to take on the work in which God has brought to me. And I thought about this this week. This must have been hard. Think for a moment with me. If you're Nehemiah and you hear from your brother, Hanani, that the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down in trouble and disgrace and you break and you weep and you mourn, how much more would you when you finally see it? When you actually approach the city, it must have been overwhelming. And what Nehemiah does is what many of us need to do is rest. I speak to myself. My wife's probably saying, yeah, I hope he takes that you know, into consideration. Bill calls me perpetual motion. You know, we need to rest. And that's what Nehemiah does. He rested. He just stops and rests. Ezra did the same thing. Do you know what? Elijah showed down on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. We find him under a juniper tree resting. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, many times in Scripture, went alone or went with his disciples for rest. For rest. I don't just mean physical exhaustion, but mental, emotional exhaustion as well. Sometimes, you know, we see those commercials and we see those people who are running 90 miles an hour. You know, all these people are living. We just need to take a break and rest and rest. You know, sometimes my family knows, you know, Sunday night, days off, I'm resting. I'm resting. It's it's really important, and I want to encourage you to do that. Number two, he sleeps in and then he surveys. Look at verse 12 through 16. I rose in the night, right? I rested, I, 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 I'm good. I took a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in the heart, in my heart to do for Jerusalem. No animal with me but the one I rode. Verse 13, I went out by night by the valley gate 
to the dragon spring and the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Verse 14. When I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So he's checking it out. He's surveying it. When I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned, verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were to do the work. So this is the gate, for those of you who can see that. He comes out around here, the valley gate, and he goes all the way around to right about here and then most people think he went back up around there. It's over a mile long, the whole gate, the whole place. So he's out. He is, he is surveying the land. He is surveying what is going on, and he is you know, checking out, you know, just, just seeing what mess that he has before him. I think he saw two things. I think, I think Nehemiah, if I was him, try to put yourself in his shoes. You had to look at this and go, you know what? There's no bulldozers. I don't know if he would say that, but I would. There's no heavy equipment. Like, it's, it's 445 B.C. There is a lot of work to be done. Amen? I mean, these walls were, you know, a few inches thick. They were 20 feet high. Like, there is a lot of work. There is a demanding job before him. You know, sometimes we have to survey our lives that are in destruction. We have to look and see exactly where we are, exactly what's going on in my life, exactly how it got the way, got to the way it is right now, and be honest with ourselves. And, and be honest with the hardship, the, the rubble of our lives. If we want God to, to rebuild, as we mentioned last week, if we want to be part of the work of the kingdom of God, live on mission, sometimes we have to face the reality. It was a dangerous job. It was a hazardous job. He had people that wanted to take him out. We'll see enemies lurking around trying to take him out. They didn't want the work to press on. So he sleeps in, he surveys around, and then he finally, look, he solicits out. Verse 17. Then I said to them, his fellow Jews, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem is in ruins, its gates burned, Come, let us build the walls that we may no longer suffer derision. Nehemiah presents the plan. He's saying, listen, guys, this is not about me. I care about the city. I care about the derision that this has brought upon us. I care about the brokenness of your lives. I care. I really do care. It's not my vision. We, look at the plurals, we are in trouble. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem. We are no longer, so that we are no longer in derision. You see all the plurals there? That's a leader. I have a vision. This is what could be. This is where we need to go. Goes from me, my vision, to our vision. This is where ownership comes in. And he says, not I, but we. It's not my vision, it's ours. Let's roll up our sleeves, let's put the work together. And I will tell you something, family. Sometimes, if we're honest, we sit in the midst of the rubble and we are blind to our own despair. Nehemiah is is calling on the people to see the brokenness and despair that they have been living in for a long time. But he wants them to see it in a new way, in a new, fresh way. Family, we get up here, we open God's word, we sing to the glory of God, we preach God's word expositorily, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because it is our hope 
together, our hearts will awaken to the brokenness of our lives, to the brokenness of the worlds around us, the world around us. And some people think I could be a Christian, I could build my own life, I could do my own thing, I can get my own healing I can, I, alone. It's no long ranger here. It's about us. And what Nehemiah wants to do is he wants to show them the despair, show them the brokenness, but then point them to Jesus, man. Point them to who can do the work, who is the one that can, you know, to work mightily in your life to bring healing to your soul. Sometimes we have what the Bible calls a conscience that has been seared. That's why we need to be under the teaching of the word. We have to be together in community groups. We have to live life together. We have to speak to each other in truth and in love. Look what he tells him. He says, let us build the wall so that we don't suffer derision. Remember we said it's about the glory of God. He said, listen, let's stop. Let's stop. We are God's people. We are God's covenant people. Let's stop acting like we're not. Let's start acting like we are. And let's get into building this temple, excuse me, building these walls so that there is no derision, that there is no uh, looking down on us and reproach upon the city. That's what he's saying. So there was trouble, yes, but he's trying to say, listen, this is who we are. Sometimes in love, we've got to point out some of the silly and stupid things we do. See, the folly and the approach that brings, upon, brings reproach upon the name of the Lord, and it's done in love. It's done through the gospel. Look at verse 18. I told them of the hand of my God was upon me for good and also for the words that the king has spoken to me. Nehemiah goes from, look at us, to like, look what God can do. The good hand was upon me. I told them that God's hand was upon me. Listen, God is in this. God is in this. So he, listen, he, he, he stands up. Excuse me, he solicits within. He charges them to join him in the work. And lastly, the last point, he stands up. So he sleeps in, he surveys, he solicits out, he points to God as the worker of all things and God, God has put it in his heart, God has given him and then finally he stands up to opposition. Look at verse 19 with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem and the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the Lord, the God of heaven, will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right to claim with us. Whenever we get serious about God, whenever we get serious about living on mission, there's going to be opposition. Look at verse 10. Look up at your Bible at verse 10. Why were they displeased? Why did they oppose the work? You see that? Verse 10, because someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. What a compliment. What a compliment. Let it be said of King's Chapel. Those people at King's Chapel, they like the downcast. They, they, those, are, those that are the marginalized in the community, those that nobody else really wants to talk to, those people over King's Chapel, they really love them. Thank you. Okay. I'll wear that. I'll wear that. To me, that is an absolute compliment. Verse 19. They jeered at us. They despised us. They mocked us. They ridiculed us. That's what it means. Verbal attacks is always Satan's tool. He'll accuse the family of God, pointing fingers at that. I love, I love Nehemiah. Nehemiah responds to these punks. Look what he says. You have no part with us. He doesn't deal with their exaggeration. He doesn't deal with their lies. He doesn't deal with dialogue really much with them. He just says, look, you have no part with us. God's going to give us the victory. You have no part with what we're doing yet. You know what? God's going to prosper. I give glory to him. I worship him. God will do what God has said he will do. 
Christians need to expect we're going to have opposition. Sometimes it's a sign that we're on the right track. Sometimes we're not opposed it's because we're not trying to take the territory that Satan has claimed for himself and we are saying, no, it's not yours. We're taking it for Jesus. You're going to have opposition. And that's what happened with Nehemiah. He had opposition. He had lots of opposition. We're going to see that throughout the, this book. So he stands up to them. He stands up to them. He takes a nap. He surveys the land. He stands up to his opposition. You know, this building, this, this, this project, this wall project, was not simply just a project. This city was a place that God had promised to dwell. This city was a place that God had promised to meet with his people. A place, a, a people where there would be light shining from Jerusalem. There would be light and salt. There would be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And Nehemiah saw the brokenness of the city and the derision it caused upon the name of God. And he was moved with action and moved and sent to Jerusalem. But let me tell you, that this Nehemiah and his seeing of brokenness, his, the derision he saw and his moving of his heart and his sending to Jerusalem points to someone greater than Nehemiah. The scripture tells us, for while we were still weak at the right time, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God showing his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were in reproach, while we had shame, while we were in derision and, and, and disrespect, God showed his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, made right by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, from the wrath of God. So God the Father looked down on the brokenness, our lives full of derision, full of reproach, full of ridicule, full of shame, full of scorn, and sent His Son into this broken, jacked up, messed up world to die. The Son who the Bible says who knew no sin, but became a sin offering, so that we may become the righteousness of God. Nehemiah was sent to Jerusalem, was able to show them their brokenness and motivate the people to rebuild the walls. But it was Jesus Christ who sent to earth, who was sent to earth to a people who could do nothing of their own, who could not save themselves, who were dead in their sins, to redeem us, to receive us, to forgive us, and to build in us a people for his glory and possession. Do you see that? The deeper you do, the greater you see the gospel, the greater you see Nehemiah pointing to a greater, a greater one who is Jesus, the more you see that, the more you see he was sent to a broken world, to a broken life, to love and redeem it, the greater you'll wait, you'll pray, you'll witness for the glory of God, and the greater you will join him on mission, asking him to empower you to live a life of salt and light to a broken, jacked-up world. God is rebuilding in you. If God has redeemed you, and God has saved you, and God has forgiven you, God does not call you in without sending you out. Nehemiah is about mission. And Nehemiah's mission points to a greater mission. 
and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ who left earth, came, excuse me, left heaven, came to earth and died an atoning sacrifice for your sins. When you know that, you'll be ready to go. Lord, send me. Lord, I'll go. Lord, I'm brokenness over this world. I see the, the brokenness. I see the despair. I see the shame. I see the scorn because it was me until you saved me. Now send me so I can be light and salt to the world. That's our response this morning. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for the mercy and the grace and the kindness you've shown to us that while we were dead in our sins, while we were powerless over our sins, while we were uh, separated from you because of our sin, you sent Jesus, your only Son, the eternal Son of God, into this world to be born of a virgin, to walk this life, to live a perfect life, to fulfill the law completely, to live a life we could never live, and then die a death we should have died. Out of love for us, and ultimately for your glory. Father, thank you. Thank you for this witness of Nehemiah that points to Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would open our hearts to see Jesus, to love him, to treasure him as the greatest treasure, the only redeemer, the one who went to the cross, died, and rose again. And Father, we pray as a church that you would help us to live on mission. God, give us somebody this week that we can pray for and that you would give us opportunity to speak about your glory nehemiah did it to the king nehemiah even did it to his enemies father we pray for opportunities to live on mission with you to demonstrate your love and to declare the truth of the death burial and resurrection of jesus our only hope and we ask all this in jesus good name amen